Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Breast Cancer Conversations. It is so nice to be speaking with all of you today. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome. It's so nice to have you here. Please be sure to subscribe. We release our podcast once a week, usually on Mondays, so you can always have something to look forward to as we begin our week together. Before we jump into today's conversation, I just want to give a quick shout out to all of the great, amazing resources we have on our website, survivingbreastcancer.org. I got some feedback, actually, that some of our listeners don't know about all of the amazing events that we have every week, every month, etc. So I want to make sure that you guys are aware. Every Thursday night, we host our Thursday Night Thrivers virtual meetup. It is our AKA support group, but it's really anything but a support group. It's kind of like chill time to hang out at 7 p.m. Eastern. Everyone is always welcome. I also kind of coin it our no agenda meetup because we talk about anything that comes to mind. Sure, breast cancer, but also anything else that we're going through in life. It's just a really nice time to hang out, chill, and catch up. So if you want more information on that, you can visit us at our website, survivingbreastcancer.org forward slash events. You will also find on that website more information on all of the amazing webinars we have coming up, our Sunday NBC series where we host webinars every other Sunday, plus our monthly book club where we read books that have nothing to do with cancer as well. So as we build this community, there are just so many ways to get involved. And speaking of books, I am excited to announce today's podcast topic where we are going to be speaking with Dr. Paul Anderson, who is the author of Cancer, The Journey from Diagnosis to Empowerment. As we know, there's no other words to describe the feeling when you or someone you love is diagnosed with cancer. On any given day, you might rotate between feelings of disbelief, anger, or grief. You may even feel like you've lost control over your own life. We've all been there. While your diagnosis might raise a number of negative feelings, there's good news. You don't have to feel lost or confused. In Dr. Paul Anderson's book, he clearly outlines what you can expect throughout your cancer journey. More importantly, he demonstrates how to cultivate a mental outlook that will help you reach your best outcome. When it comes to healing, mind does matter. Drawing on decades of experience, Dr. Anderson offers practical advice to demystify the healing process, empower patients, and teach loved ones how to provide effective support. Welcome to the conversation. I've been around medicine a long time. Uh, so I started in the laboratory end of things in 1976, actually. So it's been, been doing this a while. Went back, uh, finished medical schools a long time ago. And what happened really, just the, the very short version of the story is, in my, when I started practice, I really wanted to uh, be a general practitioner, which is what I was. But I was also very interested in um, a lot of uh, integrative medicine topics and uh, palliative care things. So what started to happen almost right away when I opened was um, people realized that I was doing certain types of therapies that other doctors in the neighborhood weren't. And so we started to get a lot of cancer patients. So it really, it didn't start out that I thought cancer would be the focus, et cetera. But that's really very rapidly what happened. Very sick people with, not, with the chronic illness and cancer. 
And that really grew into, you know, if you go back, say, 25 years or more, uh, the idea of palliative oncology was almost non-existent. Uh, the idea of integrative oncology was almost non-existent. I mean, it was really, a, we, we were all learning a lot. <clears throat> but people needed help. So that's really where it started. And from there, uh, there was uh, a good part of 20 years where I did that a lot. I also, uh, I've always taught, I, I teach physicians as a large part of what I do now, um, and mentored doctors. And so I was really involved in trying to, you know, move that part of medicine forward. Um, and in and amongst all of that, uh, in about 2000, um, uh, let's just for sake of argument, say eight or nine, you mentioned that I age. Um, I had a uh, university post uh, where I was a full-time professor in a medical school and we uh, had a NIH uh, funded study we were doing. And it was a collaborative between my university and the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, which is University of Washington and Children's Hospital and Fred Hutchinson and, you know, some very big players. And, what it started was, I didn't start with the study, but I joined it right away. And it was, if we took people who had largely breast cancer, but there were a lot of other cancers as well, from this large collaborative, those who wanted to do integrative therapies and palliative therapies, the stuff I've been doing, uh, what if we track them and then match them to people same age who did standard therapies? And so everyone did standard therapies, but we had to do the add-ons. Uh, after five years, would we see better quality of life or survival, et cetera? And so we did that for five years. What got me involved was the study had an interventional part uh, that they couldn't start until they had somebody who had done that before, and that's what I was doing, uh, the intravenous therapies and all of these other interventional things. So um, I was part of that for the five years, and I almost thought we got funded because they didn't think it would make a difference. And at the mm -hmm. end, we actually got some very positive uh, note that our patients did actually live longer, you know, compared to age matched. And, and it spawned a, another study that looks a lot at quality of life and some other things that are going on. So I've had a, a not planning it at all, but I've had a very rich background with cancer patients. And so, what really happened as far as writing about cancer, I've always written because I'm a teacher, but um, right after the study, I started to publicize some of the things that we had done. Because if you've ever looked at studies, there may be parts of the studies that no one ever publishes because there's so many things you discover you didn't realize. So I went and started teaching. Well, I was doing that and a, a doctor I hadn't seen in 25 years who went to medical school together came up to me at a conference and said, you should really tell this story. And you, um, he says, you have a hard time getting a publishing deal though, because you're, you know, no one knows you except in the academic world. Uh, and he says, but I can get you a publishing deal. So we wrote a book together that was predates this book, which was really a lot about those other things, sort of the, you know, what I would call the, what happens to you with cancer and what, what are choices to make that are better and worse in the, you know, integrative space, et cetera. Um, when we were done with that, that book's uh, in many languages around the world. It's been very popular. It's called Outside the Box Cancer Therapies. But when we were done, I was mentoring my clinic and my doctors. And one of the things that I, I felt like we did a great job with the 
what do you do with cancer as far as your body goes? But what we kept, I kept running into was we talked a little about the mind-body connection and just the logistics of, oh, what do I do with this diagnosis? I didn't want it. I, you know, what do I do with my family? What do I do with, you know, everything? So the more I worked on that with my own doctors and mentored people, um, the more I thought, you know, agnostic of how you're treating cancer, what you're doing about your cancer, the internal part that you go through and your closest loved ones go through and get diagnosed is so critically important. So that led to this book, uh, Cancer, the Journey from Diagnosis to Empowerment, literally the the point. It's, um, I designed it to be easy to read, not super heavy and academic, which is the first time I ever wrote something <laughs> like that. Um, but honestly, it was, it, it, this, I mean, there's some research and some data and things that I, you know, looked at or whatever, but really this came from just my day-to-day experience over those three decades um, and looking people in the eye, getting diagnosis and, and walking them through that. Um, so the point really is, there is a way to go from the shock and whatever emotions go on that you feel to a place where you're more, you know, empowered, self-actualized, whatever you want to call that. Um, but it doesn't happen automatically for most people. So that's, that's the short version of all those yeah. years. <laughs> no, that's wonderful. Well, such a rich introduction as well. And a, you know, decades of experience, which I'm so excited to have our listeners kind of take us on, have you take us on this journey, right? From diagnosis to empowerment. I feel like anecdotally, we speak about that a lot in our like support groups and our blogs and the work that we do, because we know that we, anecdotally, it makes us feel better, right? When we exercise, we feel better. When we take time to focus on the breath and the mind-body connection that you're talking about, um, we know it helps, but we don't always know why it helps. And I would like to take a step back quickly too, just so we can define terms for people who, not, who might not be aware when we talk about kind of like the traditional therapies, I think you're referring to like the surgery, the radiation and the chemotherapy, whereas integrative care, which I think is a nice segue from what used to be referred to as alternative medicine, where it's no longer alternative. It's how can we put these therapies together and really integrate them so that the quality of life, um, you know, is, is there for the person going through the treatment. Do I have that correct? Very much. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. It doesn't always work out that way, but that's the goal. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I know when I was going through my own personal treatment too, a lot of these integrative therapies were recommended to me, such as acupuncture, to help with some of the side effects that I was going through. And, you know, it's, it's, I think just a mindset also. So what I love about your book is that right from the beginning, you kind of paint this picture of the shock and the devastation that comes with a cancer diagnosis, and then how mentally we can start making this shift. And you kind of talk about two different characters in your book and kind of the diversion that these two characters take. Can you tell me a little bit about um, these these personas? Yeah. yeah so um, there's, there's two characters that you get to meet. Well, you get to meet some other people later, but um, Bob and Gia. And they're actually real people. Obviously, it's not their names, and I change details so no one knows who they are. But they're very real people. And that was a big part of the motivation to write the book, uh, other than what I was seeing just with patients. And there was sort of a hole here in that space. Um, but the uh, the publishers, in I, I came up with the idea of, could I tell two stories? And 
the publisher really encouraged that because the rest of the book is useful from a technical point of view of, gee, I'm stuck and I'm angry. Well, you know, where do I go? Or I, you know, I can't get my family on board or whatever it is. <clears throat> the stories really are there to give the two counterpoints to ways you deal with the, you know, that trip from being diagnosis to either not being empowered or being empowered. So each one of them embodies that. And, it, and it's real stories. It's, uh, you know, everything in the book is very, very real from real experience. So the point of that, though, is it, sometimes we, you know, sometimes we learn from data and bulleted points and there's that. And sometimes you just learn from stories. Stories are wonderful. And my, the first thing I always like to say is I don't, um, I don't judge either uh point of view uh i of course you never want a patient to become angry and stuck and you know self-sabotage but you know one of them did um <clears throat> so it didn't make me happy that they did but that's that's the person's choice everything's your choice but if you want to do something other than that you know there there is a trajectory so those two stories really are we see a lot of ourselves in them in different places and the stories uh you know each each chapter sort of has the technical parts of where to go. The story kind of unfolds in that, you know, in that order and direction. So yeah, it's it's there to add some humanity to, you know, what otherwise yes. could be a little technical book. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think sometimes we forget that our own diagnosis extends just beyond the self, that it impacts our families, our friends. And I use the term like we all the time, like we have cancer, we are going through cancer, we are going through treatment. Because as I think you point out in the book is there's this grieving process that we're all on a different journey in terms of those like anger phase, denial phase, acceptance phase, et cetera. But then our family and loved ones might be on a different path also. And so how do we deal with these different personalities or, you know, um, in my experience, I love my mom to death. She's a nurse. And she, when I was going through breast cancer, she wanted to be the nurse. And I really had to turn to her and say, no, I need you to be my mom right now. And that was a challenging and hard conversation to have. But, you know, I think you talk about that also in your book in terms of the role the family plays and the grieving process, too. Sometimes it's the patient with cancer who is the one really struggling and maybe stuck in, you know, denial or, or whatever stage of grief. And I did use those stages of grief, you know, to, it's a framework we're all familiar with usually, and it is actually the order that people kind of process cancer diagnosis in too. But the other side of it though, is you can actually be doing pretty good as the patient, but you have to understand, and it's not your responsibility, but the people around you who love you and are close to you, are just as shocked and just don't know what to do. And they might be angry or they might, you know, what happens a lot, like with your mother as a nurse or any, you know, any medical person, their default is if I do something for you medically as a nurse, or if I'm your doctor, I'm doing something to help you. And really it's harder sometimes uh, to take that role off and mm -hmm. just be, the loved one, you know, the parent, the spouse, the partner, whatever. Um, and that's really, we talk about that in the book, those discussions of, look, this is, it's great. You want to do that, but this is what I need from you. You know, I need this primary relationship we have. And it's so important. Um, and a lot of times, and I saw this, uh, you know, weekly with, with patient families, some it's just like it works out and everyone sort of sorts out where they're at and they get over, you know, the place they were stuck. But sometimes you really have these two divergent 
urgent things, especially with like partners, spouses. And that's not a healthy, like none of the point of the book is if we move more towards being empowered in our small circle, including the patient, our outcomes are better. It's, you know, it's not great to have cancer, but it's, it's a more doable thing and you actually get better outcomes when you do have that. So the fan, your close circle is, is so huge. Um, and, and they're going through it a different way. You know, what I usually remind people is when you hear that you, uh, have cancer, it activates your, your fight or flight system and it activates, you know, your partner's fight or flight system. But what that connects to is two different worlds. You know, they may have seen some, you know, very bad outcome with cancer, had a primary, you know, loved one or relative go through something that they thought, I, I never, ever want to see that in my life. Well, then you hear, well, my wife has cancer. It's, it takes them there. It doesn't take them to a, you know, some logical place. So there's a lot to, you know, it's not easy. Uh, but it's really worth it. And it's really worth it at least to get the people closest to you on board. I think you are hitting on some key points about, you know, empowerment. How can the patient feel empowered to have those conversations with people to say, this is what serves me now. This is what's helpful to me and what's not helpful to me. I think a lot of times, you know, it's easy to just kind of harbor some of those emotions and, and that really makes sense of it. And then to feel that it's okay to disagree with someone if it doesn't help you. What I love about your book is that you immediately say like, it's okay to be selfish. Now is the time to put yourself first and yourself and your health are the only things that matter. Everything else is secondary. And I think just reading that was like, like, yes, like I'm ready to go take on the world. Like I matter, I'm important. And I can say like, yes to what I need. And whether that's a nap or whether that's a walk, um, you know, I sometimes feel like having those words and reading them give give us the permission to say that it's okay. It's you're allowing us that permission to to be okay on those good days and to not be okay on those bad days. As you well know, it's um most people are not socialized to a place where it's okay to you know be the center of what needs to happen and and that becomes a real you know, stumbling block for a lot of people, which is why, you know, almost, almost every, if not every chapter where there's sort of, you know, you can get stuck here and move on. The first thing I say is it, it's okay to be that way. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to whatever. The point is that's a place in time and you want to move from there. But the other thing is it's, it's more than okay for you to take care of yourself and say whatever it is, you know, I, I can't do this activity anymore. I need to focus on this or I need time so I can take care of my body or whatever it is. And most people just don't have that internal, the message they hear back is, well, you should think about other people or, you know, something like that. And, um, and, you know, we shouldn't not think about other people, but you, you are, engaged with, you know, a process that's not, uh, not got your best interests at heart. So you have to have your best interests at heart. Yeah. And you definitely make that connection between like the emotional piece, those, those thoughts we tell ourselves in our head and the impact that it has on our outcome and diagnosis. A lot of um, the conversations that I have in some of my circles most recently, I am four years out from my original diagnosis and I am still healing. I am still now trying to let go of the pre-cancer me, work on the current version of me. And 
also trying to be gentle and practice that self-care piece because there's still a lot of things that I can't do. And just last night in one of our support groups that we hold every Thursday night, we were talking about like, we can't go, we can't ever go back just like the grieving process, right? Like we can't be in that hole of, oh, I wish I could have done, should have done, you know, used to be able to do. But look at all the amazing things now that I can do because I've come out on this other side, whether it's, you know, I no longer practice the vigorous yoga I used to do. It's more of like a slow meditative practice um, and coming to terms with that. I would love to hear your opinion on kind of like the self-care and the self-healing piece and what you say to someone who's still maybe a little bit stuck in in that like sad world of like, how did this happen to me, but I want to come out of it? How can I take better care of myself? Yeah, that's where the rubber meets the road, really, for most people. Um, the first thing, you know, that I, I think is most important with that discussion is allowing the person time to get to that place where they actually say it. Because if if some outside person just tells you, you know, look, you, you need to <laughs> stop thinking about the past and you need to to do some self-care or whatever. Sometimes people need that maybe to move off the dime, but really that has to come from within. And I think the most important thing is it's not, it's, it's the extremely rare human who wakes up one morning and says, okay, today I'm all about self-care and I'm going to forget about the pre-cancer me. Most people, it's just, I've come to a realization. I want to go there. I have no idea how to do it. Uh, so I'm willing but I'm, you know, unaware. Um, that's the moment at which then, you know, the who, whoever is helping, whether it's a medical person or family or a, a therapist or whatever, or, or support group, um, that's the point at which you provide resources that are the next steps. And I think the most important thing is not overwhelming people because you can come to realization, you know, for people who don't have cancer, it's sometimes they'll uh, come to realization, I need to take better care of myself and exercise. Well, if you suddenly give them, you know, a 400 point exercise plan and they've never exercised it, they're not, you know, that's overwhelming. Same if you have cancer and you realize you got to do something and you have to move away, you know, from past thinking, et cetera, you got to start with just baby steps and move forward. Um, so a lot of it is that, um, holding a place for the fact that you're new at this, um, realizing you can only do so much at a time. Uh, and, and really the, you know, you probably saw kind of the order the book is written in. What I say is that you, you might be great with the stuff in chapter one, but chapter two, you might be stuck at great. Spend some time there. You know, it's, it's baby steps and every day, just, you know, just like, grieving or just like processing anything every day is a new day to do that too so you don't necessarily wake up on day two or day 20 and say you know i've got all that handled and you know most of the time you wake up and say "Mm, i still have cancer and i need to you know I, i i need to be in this other place with it so a lot of it is just being uh gentle uh gentle motivation forward tools when they're needed but not too many um because I, I did see that a lot that, that sort of stimulated some memories for me about when I was thinking of writing the book, mentoring doctors, especially, you know, newer ones. And uh, they would get a cancer patient, and give them way too much all at once. And the patient's just like, you know, overwhelmed with, you know, so they have all this physical stuff they're doing and maybe they're doing, 
you know, chemo, or maybe they're getting surgery and recovering and doing 11 other things. And then they've got, you know, a 40 point list about changing their diet and their mental set and their other, it's like, without cancer, you can't do all that, you know, (laughs) so, you know, (laughs) so let's, you know, let's start with one thing and move you forward and and keep going. And that's, I think that's the most humane way, but it's also most sustainable way to do that. Yeah. I hear a lot of times that, you know, cancer could be that catalyst that wakes us up and that ignites some sort of flame within Mm -hmm. us to make behavioral changes. And another piece that I love about your book, too, as you give us all of these tools and allow us to linger in various chapters as we're doing the inner work to heal internally, I think that's incredibly important what you mentioned and resonates with me very much so to say that we have to want that change. We have to want to have that mentality and shift because if it doesn't come from within, it's going to sound like one more thing on our to-do list. and. Potentially, you know, depending on your your behaviors and character, like it might retract, right? You say, "Well, I don't want this at all," and I'm even going to hibernate even more so. So, it's it's definitely a fine line and something that people need to tread lightly on for sure. Um, and you know, I think one of the tools that you you share in the book is the opportunity for us to control what is in our control and then let go of what is not in our control. I think so much of a cancer diagnosis, when you feel like everything is ripped out of you, how can we make sense of what we can do on like kind of these small chunks of bite-sized chunks of like day to day, this is something that's in my control. And it could be that mindset or it could be the diet. It could be taking a walk or an exercise, like something that is tangible because so much of it is unknown, especially in, in the cancer world, right? We have treatments are constantly changing or evolving based on how you're responding to a particular drug. And, you know, I I hear a lot of times too, you know, we think we're going in for one surgery and then lo and behold, there's an infection or something happens or you need for breast cancer, your exchange surgeries. Like there's so much and there's a lot of unknown. And, you know, to kind of tie this back to those various phases of grief and loss and sadness and then unknown, like we just want control. We want to know what we can do. And I used to tell my doctors too, like you're in charge of the medical side. I'm in charge of like the health and wellness side and we can meet halfway. And I feel that way that I am empowered and that I can Mm -hmm. take an active Mm -hmm. role in my health. I think you speak a lot about that in your book as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is so critically important with, with, with cancer as, as a journey, but especially like with what you're describing where, um, treatments can change suddenly surgeries can you know everything can change suddenly because your body is going to react the way your body reacts and we see that all the time you get 10 people with the same chemo regimen and you know seven do one way and you know three do three different ways um and so yeah part of what i try to get to in the book is those are things that you don't want to totally like just go on autopilot and say, well, whatever, you know, but I mean, you only have so much control over how your surgery goes. That's, you know, you can prepare for it. You can do all this stuff, but the rest is about the surgeon, your body and how it all works together. Same with chemo, you know, or, or a, a targeted therapy or something, your body and your immune system do the work and you may not have total control. And one of the things I've seen that gets people to stay stuck is if their focus is all on, you know, especially people that like a lot of control, that's probably, that's a human condition, but you know, some people are much more into control than other people. Um, 
I've seen them get so tied up in those things that they can't really control that there's no energy for the stuff you can, you know, which, which are the harder things, literally waking up and saying, you know, it's another day with cancer, but it's, you know, it's my day. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. you know, this is, you know, this is going to, whatever happens, however I feel it's still my day and this is going to be how it goes. And, and I think that that switch of do an inventory, cause you know, every month mm-hmm. it's different. What's in your control. What's kind of in your control. Like you could maybe choose your doctor, maybe choose whatever, but beyond that, the medical side, like you say, is it's going to do what it's going to do. So then you got a whole bunch of other stuff you're in control of. And that, and that, that is empowering in of itself because if people get to stay stuck in the area of stuff they can't control, you're automatically disqualified. You like you, you're disempowered because I can't be empowered about something I have no control over. You know, I can be empowered about how I am around that, but you know, so focus on the stuff that you you're totally in control of. Yeah. As big or as small as those things can be too. It's, yeah. You know, with the cancer diagnosis, I was, you want a plan, you want that roadmap. And I had to quickly learn, I think it was my second appointment after chemotherapy. And I was like, that plan has to go out the window. Like, I just can't hold on to that. And it's, I think it's also hard too. going back to the chapters on like family and friends, they turn to you to say like, well, what's next? What's happening next? They want a roadmap also. And so all of a sudden, it can be compounded with, you know, I was given some information, the information changed. And now as I'm talking to new the newly diagnosed, it's it's very similar type of peer-to-peer advice of, you know, you have to be flexible and nimble and just kind of go with the flow sometimes because it'll save you some stress and heartache on the other yeah, end. Yeah, it's you really have to hold it with an open hand because there's just, you know, um there's so many things that can change and not necessarily even go wrong, just change, you know. Um and People, obviously, we don't, you know, if we don't have cancer, we're not usually sitting around focusing on how cancer is treated and things. But, you know, I always try to tell people, look, you know, your radiation oncologist or your medical oncologist or surgical oncologist, um, they have huge jobs that have almost no margin for error. And so their whole world is tied up in doing dosing your radiation or figuring out your chemo or changing your chemo or doing the right surgery for the moment um, to keep you as safe and healthy as possible. So like that's their world. They're really tied up in it and you just don't know how many variables they have to sift through. So changes are part of the deal usually. Uh, So, you know, pick good doctors, let them do their work keep on top of what they're doing, ask questions, but then, you know, focus on being as prepared as possible to either do or not do treatment or uh, be as prepared as possible to deal with what you can. It's, it's a huge thing. If you think, oh, you know, cause I'll use this analogy. Most of us have been to the doctor cause we got, you know, strep throat or we had a broken leg. Those are pretty linear treatments. You know, there's X amount of time, there's this medicine and you're better sometime in the future. Cancer doesn't work that way. You know, every day there's sort of all these variables that get thrown up in the air and then, you know, you see which balls hit the floor first and that's what you do. Um, very different. So it, it's, yeah, that's really good peer to peer advice. A hundred percent. And I think that's a great way to reframe it as well. Taking it like you're not changing it because, um, I'm just going to be very candid. Like 
I think sometimes too, it could be like the the trust that we have with our doctors, right? It's like you're given one thing and now you're changing it on me. And I think the way you just reshaped that was like, okay, it's a positive. You're changing this because you're tailoring it, but it's yeah. my own symptoms and my reactions that I'm having, which is completely different than somebody else. And so I love that. That's great positivity. I want to pick your brain a little bit more on the mindfulness and t- kind of taking a deeper dive into the integrative therapies and complementary care that you were discussing in your book. And I know you also mentioned a little bit about palliative care. Um, I think sometimes we think about palliative care as like end of life and sometimes use it interchangeably with hospice, but it's not necessarily. And to utilize the palliative care and integrative cares as quality of life, how, how can we speak about a quality of life and how do you define that? I think that's a really good, uh, and, and sometimes I, I forget because I think of palliative care as really encompassing, but a lot of people do. They hear palliative and they think, oh no, you know, it's the same as hospice or something. Now it can include that, but really, um, as I was mentioning earlier, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the, the idea of palliative oncology was just end of life care. It has come a very long way since then. So now what that really means and maybe a better term, although it's not the term people normally use is, is, uh, you know, quality of life and health enhancement is really what you're talking about in modern times. Now, going back to just what I said earlier about, you know, you've got your surgical oncologist and medical and radiation oncologist, their, their world is wrapped up in their treatments, which are so complex. They, understand the need for this other stuff but that's not their job that's not what they do you know it's people like me who do the quality of life and other care what i usually tell people is uh, there there's really four steps in a cancer journey the first step is you don't know you have cancer and it's primary prevention most people are always making cancer cells but they don't develop cancer or don't do till later the next step is what the book is talking about, which is diagnosis and initial treatment. And then the next step is actually recovery from treatment so that, you know, you stay in remission or you get towards remission, et cetera. Um, and then the next step is secondary prevention, which is let's not have it come back or get worse or, you know, whatever. Um, and the reason I divide it that way for people's minds is the amount of effort and energy you as a patient have time-wise, energy-wise, et cetera, to put into working on those things is very different at each step. Primary prevention, preventing things, it's that can be 100%. If you are just starting with some surgery and chemo or radiation or whatever, you aren't going to have time and energy for very much. You, you're going to do, maybe, like I say, baby steps just to shore up everything. But in the recovery part, in what I would call palliative or quality of life recovery care, it's not about hospice or end of life normally. It's about let's get you recovered from, you know, all of all of this treatment you just had. It's, you know, there there's no, uh, maybe there is. I can't think of a cancer therapy of any kind that is any fun and you come out the other side feeling healthier than you did when you started it's it's you know there's this job you're doing of treating cancer and now you know you want to recover one of the things and i i get to the mental emotional part in this book the prior book we talked a lot about it medically but the more you do on the other end of recovery from surgery radiation chemo etc actually the more calm your cancer stem cells are and the less chance of recurrence later on 
So when we're talking about palliative oncology, yeah, it's it's the whole spectrum. And while it might include more end-of-life things, that's, you know, 5% of, of what we're trying to do. Mostly what we're trying to do is make you as healthy as possible so that you have the lowest index of cancer wanting to come back or be aggressive, et cetera. Um, so it's a, and there's, there's so, you know, if I think of just what we didn't know five or 10 years ago, but if you go back 25 years ago, it was like, well, we can do something. <laughs> you know, I mean, it was, it was really, uh, it just, you know, it's, it's been logarithmically expanding and, and the research has too. I mean, you know, the first book we had, uh, like over a thousand scientific, you know, resources. Um, this book isn't so much about that, but, um, but the mindset part, I guess, you know, a big reason for the book, this, this book about the mindset is and the empowerment, you can do all the the perfect medical oncology you can do all the perfect recovery and palliative and quality of life stuff but if your brain is stuck in that place where you're still angry you you know don't want this cancer you're mad at it it's you're a victim um your body doesn't heal the same and so it's it's part and parcel with the external things you do such as you know fixing your body after surgery or, you know, recovering from chemo or whatever. It's also your brain being on board with that. So it, you know, moves you forward. I couldn't agree more. I think the the mental side is the muscle we have to work also, right? It's not just the physical and, you know, the exercise, but how can we mentally help ourselves grow after such a traumatic diagnosis? And I completely agree. I think when we talk about the secondary prevention piece, and I do kind of want to reframe this also, because I'm also very sensitive to a lot of women in our community who were diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer de novo. And so there is some anger there where you don't have that initial early stage to have that option. You think you're being preventative and there's a variety of reasons why that happens. But you know, when we, and I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth or like for your book, but as I was reading about the secondary prevention piece, it wasn't just a second recurrence of breast cancer, but it was that no evidence of disease or no progression of disease, right? Like how can we take this and again, still feel empowered and even with a terminal diagnosis, still move forward and again, be empowered with the choices and the control that we have um, every single day that we wake up. Mm-hmm. You you did a good job putting words in. The, the, the idea with secondary prevention, of course, is you there, there are things you can do to get to a certain place there. But as, as you say, some people, and this was a large portion of our patients, started out de novo with, you know, metastatic disease. And mm-hmm. they, you know, there isn't the first two or three steps, you know, it's just boom, here it is. Yeah. And here's what we're going to do about it. So secondary prevention, the nice thing about the more modern way of looking at it is it's not just for people with no evidence of disease or in true remission. Uh, it's also for people who are either really, we had other two other areas. One was uh, progressive, but but slow progressive disease, and the other was stable disease. And so you may have metastatic, you know, stage four cancer, but you can do everything you can to keep it uh, either very slow progressive or stable um, 
so it's not in remission, but it's remission-like. There's a lot of things you can still do there to manage all of that because you know you're um, you're just as shocked, but I, I would say yes, probably a little more anger comes up because you feel like, gosh, why couldn't I have been diagnosed at stage one, you know, like my friend did or stage mm -hmm. two. And here I was diagnosed at stage four, which is a lot of people nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, it, you don't, you've, that's not part of your choices, which is terrible. It's too bad, but that's the way, you know, it is. So for that person, they have to rewind to the place where you process the anger and the, the loss of total control over everything. Plus, you're grieving the fact that you didn't get a stage one diagnosis to deal with or, or mm -hmm. a stage two or something. Um, and it's the same steps. It's just, you, you're going to deal with different emotions because you literally had a whole bunch of options you never got. Yeah. Uh, important part is it's still so critical to, to do the mental, emotional and mind body connection work, et cetera, to get beyond that. Because we've literally had people, um, with metastatic disease, uh, who, you know, through whatever combination of therapies, uh, and, and supportive things stayed stable and had very good quality of life for years and years and years. And, uh, yeah, they, they never, you know, stage four cancer didn't go away. You don't really see that very much, but they had, you know, what they said were wonderful, life you know wonderful quality of life yes. dealt with it as it came and and i think you know it's it's that's a tough those are the elephants in the room which are nobody wants to talk about that real harsh reality that you know and again you're not telling the person well get over it you know because that's <laughs> that's not the point course, it's you know course. you don't have to get over it you have to you have to recognize you you have every right to be angry because this there's nothing fair about this uh but staying in the anger won't make you healthier. You know, processing it will moving forward. Um, and we had, you know, in the in the NIH research, the, the large majority of people that were doing interventional things that I was in charge of, uh, all but one were stage four people, most stage wow. four at diagnosis. And they were, um, uh, which makes you more uh, amenable in research to do all sorts of things, which is what we did. Um, but they were, um, they had all mostly come to the place where they were so, they were an empowered group and they didn't like having stage four cancer and, you know, they didn't like the effects and all of that. But the reason they were part of this research project and were, were in, in my section were they knew that at some point it would help somebody down the road. Hundred percent. That gives me goosebumps. I totally agree. Yeah, it, it it was, and and they, um, you know, those are the people that motivate me. Uh, many of them are no longer with us, but a lot of them still are. You know, mm -hmm. we we had one lady that was diagnosed at eighty five. Doctor said she wouldn't live to see eighty six, and uh, we celebrated her ninetieth birthday in our office, and she made it to ninety six years. She lived ten years. Yeah, and amazing. it was all her like just the way she dealt with it. So yeah, it's, it's not, you know, none of the things are easy. Um, you know, n I these aren't easy conversations to have with yourself, <laughs> let alone with, you know, yeah. people in your circle, but they're so necessary for your mind to be free to let you be as healed as you can be. 
Yeah, I think the positive affirmations and, you know, not letting someone else dictate time that how much time you have mm. left to live. No one can say that, right? So if right. you can wake up in the yeah. morning saying today's a new day, I'm going to live it to the fullest. Um, you know, it's it definitely has a positive outcome and relation on your own mental health and on your body and on your your outcome. So that's really great to hear. Very much. Yes. You'll be able to buy this book, Cancer, The Journey from Diagnosis to Empowerment, via Amazon. It's also available on Kindle as well as an audiobook. I will link to all of this in our show notes below. So this has just been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's a perfect organic conversation. Yeah. Exactly. That's how I love them too. (laughs) Thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. If you'd like to find out more about our organization and upcoming events and ways to connect, You can find out more by visiting our website at survivingbreastcancer.org. I would like to acknowledge that all of the information on our podcast is from personal experiences, and it is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should always consult your medical care team. If you're looking for specific topics or would like to be a guest on our show, feel free to contact me directly at laura at survivingbreastcancer.org. And of course, we have a couple social media handles you can follow us at as well. For example, survivingbreastcancer.org, all one word, as well as our podcast specifically, Breast Cancer Conversations. Until next time, keep on thriving.